0: Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Over the last few weeks, we have been in this series that we've called Actors. We've been looking at the characters that make up the story of the book of Acts and what happens when, when they encounter the message of Jesus and the presence of of the Holy Spirit. And I think we've been able to see over the last two weeks from the text that we've looked at, I think we've been able to see this theme, but it would have been more apparent if we were just sitting down and reading through the book of Acts on its own that that we're in a a stage of transition in the growth of the early church. Uh, Up through the end of Acts chapter 5, we're really in a, a state where the church is largely composed of people who are ethnically Jewish and who are living in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding region. But in Acts chapter 6, with the uh, introduction of Stephen that we looked at uh, two weeks ago, we start to see that there are people in the church who uh, come from other places, that uh, have other backgrounds. And then, uh, we move into, we looked at Acts chapter 8 last week. And the, we see that the church is expanding outside of the city, Of Jerusalem for the first time Uh, it's it's the message of Jesus is going north into the region of Samaria in the beginning of Acts chapter 8 it goes south uh, with the the sharing of the gospel with Ethiopian eunuch in the second half of Acts chapter 8 that we looked at last week and that sort of expansion that growth is going to continue throughout the rest of this book until we get to the very end of the book and the gospel reaches the city of Rome the capital of the Empire the the center of the known world at this time and if you've read the book of Acts before you know that at the center of the story, really from about Acts chapter 13 on through the end of the book in chapter 28, is the Apostle Paul. If you have any acquaintance with the New Testament at all, even if you've never read it but you've heard about it, you might know that the Apostle Paul writes roughly half of the books that make up what we call the New Testament. But before all that happens, before any, any writing is done, any traveling is done, Paul has to encounter Jesus for himself. Because while we know him today as the Apostle Paul, he was first known as Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee who had been trained in Jerusalem. And I'll probably spend the whole morning alternating between uh, calling him Saul and Paul, so just know that with both names I'm referring to the same person. Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Greek name. And we met him briefly uh, in the midst of the story of Stephen that we looked at two weeks ago. We pointed... Uh, Luke made it a point to show us that he is present at this scene. And if we were just reading the story of Stephen on its own, it would seem kind of odd. Because right there at the end of Acts chapter 7, Luke, Luke kind of stops the story for a second and says that there's this guy named Saul there. And then Acts chapter 8, verse 1, again, the story kind of ends with like, and there was this guy Saul there who approved of everything that was going on. And that would be sort of odd if we just read that story on its own. But the reason... Luke includes those verses for us is because whether or not anyone could recognize it as Saul Saul is standing there observing the death of Stephen because of his proclamation of the message of Jesus, God was in pursuit. God was in pursuit of this Pharisee named Saul. Luke gave us a preview of what was to come a couple weeks back by introducing us to this character Saul at the death of Stephen. And then he spends Acts chapter 8 introducing us to the gospel spreading into new territories for the first time. And from here on, a a good portion of the book of Acts is going to be weaving together those two themes as God uses this person, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, to take the gospel into all sorts of uncharted territories for the first time. And so we're going to be looking at the beginning of that this morning in Acts chapter 9. And there's three scenes to this story that we'll look at this morning. First, like I already mentioned, we're going to see God's pursuit of Saul as the risen Jesus himself reveals, uh, reveals himself to Saul. Excuse me. And then as the story continues, we see God invite others in as Saul moves from being an enemy of the church to being one of its loudest Voices. And then in the last scene of this story, Saul moves into the ministry that we know him for as he becomes the main character going forward, really, throughout the rest of this book. But let's start by looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9 for us. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's another title for the church at this time, whether men or women, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They they heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The last thing we heard about Saul, like I've already mentioned, is in Acts 8, verse 1, uh, where we're told that Saul approved of the death of Stephen. And that sets off a chain reaction of persecution of the early church in and around Jerusalem. And Saul re-enters the story here, continuing that same effort, doing everything in his power to put a stop to this movement of people who are claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. But as the church expands into new territories, it becomes important for this effort of persecution to expand as well. And so Saul gets permission to travel to Damascus in order to try to stop the message of Jesus there as well. But God has different plans for Saul of Tarsus as he makes his way to Damascus. Before he can get there, a light knocks him to the ground, and with that light comes a voice. Now, like I've already said, Saul of Tarsus was a trained Pharisee. I would be willing to bet that he knew the Old Testament better than anyone who can hear my voice right now. Maybe better than all of us combined, I don't know. He knew stories from the Old Testament where light and a voice appears to someone as an expression of the presence of God. Saul knew stories like Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is out in the wilderness working as a shepherd, and he sees this bush that's burning, but this bush, it has a flame coming off of it, but it's not being consumed, and so he goes over to investigate what's going on with this bush, and God speaks to him and calls him into the work that Moses will have for the rest of his life of leading the nation of Israel. And something something similar is going on here, but the voice Saul hears is not the voice he was expecting. This voice asks a question, why are you persecuting me? Notice Jesus, that voice, does not say, why are you persecuting my followers? He says, why are you persecuting me? I don't think that's an accident. That is a statement from Jesus about how closely he identifies with his people. Back in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is is telling this story about the end of time. And he says there will be some people to whom he will say that I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. You gave me something to drink when I was thirsty. Uh, You welcomed me in when I was a stranger. You gave me clothes when I was in need. You had visited me when I was in sick and when I was in prison. And he says that those people are going to be confused because they're going to say, we have no memory of ever doing any of that for you, Jesus. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Jesus does not view his people as a fan club that he's glad to have around to tell him how great he is. He views his people, he views us, he views you and me as an extension of himself. At the end of Acts chapter 7, a couple weeks ago, we saw it looked like Stephen was left totally alone, left to die before an angry mob that is being overseen by Saul of Tarsus. Yet, he is not alone. Jesus himself is there with him in his suffering. Jesus makes it possible for Stephen to remain faithful even in his death because of the power that's available through the resurrection of Jesus. That is the intimacy with which Jesus identifies with his people even today. Jesus does not look at his church as acquaintances, as work colleagues, as himself. Jesus is near to his people. He was near to Stephen in his death. He is near to Saul. He is near to those that Saul has been persecuting. He's near to our brothers and sisters around the world, enduring persecution, even as I speak right now. He is near to us in our hurts and in our grief and in our suffering. But he is not just near to us in the way that a friend might be near to you when you are suffering, when you're going through something bad and they sit next to you and give you a shoulder to cry on because they're not able to give you anything else. He is near to us because he has endured the suffering of the cross. He has overcome death at his resurrection. And because of that, he's near to us in our hurts. And that means that we are able to overcome through him as well. That is the comfort that we are able to take from the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that nearness, that presence, is the reality that Saul is confronting here on the road to Damascus. Because Saul thought he was serving God by trying to stop this movement of people who were claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. But in reality, he was fighting against the very risen Son of God himself. Later in his life, in the letter of Philippians, Paul will write that at this point in his life, he had the highest pedigree imaginable. Uh, he, He says he was completely devoted to keeping the Old Testament law as strictly as anyone could. He expressed that devotion through his persecution of those who had deviated from what he believed to be the truth. But he discovers here that all that devotion is misdirected. Later in Acts 26, Paul will be telling this, this same story again from his own point of view, and he'll add the detail that Jesus asks him in this moment, why are you kicking against the goads? Now a goad was something you used to direct your animal while you were working them in the field. It normally had some kind of point at the end to help you pr- be able to prod them along. So if an ox or some other animal was kicking against this sharp stick because they didn't want to go where they're being directed, it's only causing unnecessary problems for everyone involved. And Jesus says to Paul here that he's like a rebellious animal that doesn't understand where it's supposed to go. He's been thinking he was doing the work of God, when in reality he's in rebellion. Yet God's reaction is not to wipe him off the face of the earth as he deserves. His reaction is to pursue him. Pursue him out of his rebellion and into life in Christ. And we don't know everything that's going on in Saul's brain right in this moment, but But when he hears this voice call out to him, it seems significant that he responds by calling this voice, Lord. Now referring to someone as Lord can mean a lot of different things depending on who you're talking to. It can be a generic sign of respect like sir or something like that today. But it at least means Saul understands whoever's appearing to him must have more authority or power than he does. And it's only with the benefit of hindsight that we're able to see the true significance of that word, Lord. These people Saul had been persecuting are not followers of some nut who has to be stopped at all costs. They're followers of the resurrected king of the universe. And right here, Saul comes to terms with that reality. And when he does, Saul loses control over his life and over this situation. He goes from the one who is giving orders, the one who is on this mission to the city of Damascus to persecute and arrest followers of Jesus. He goes from that to the one who is receiving the orders. The one who Jesus tells to get up, go into the city of Damascus and await further instruction. He goes from leading the charge to no longer being able to see or walk on his own, needing someone to lead him the rest of the way. All his plans have been derailed. And he's now left to spend three days in darkness, not eating or drinking anything, considering what has just occurred and how that is going to alter the course of his existence. And the next part of the story shows how God pursues not just Saul, but others as well to be a part of what's happening in this story. So let's pick up in verse 10. It says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man "'Named Ananias, come and place his hands on him "'to restore his sight. L- "'Lord,' Ananias answered, I, "'I've heard many reports about this man "'and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. "'He has come here with authority from the chief priest "'to, a- to arrest all who call on your name.' But "'The Lord said to Ananias, "'Go, this man is my chosen instrument "'to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings "'and to the people of Israel.' I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. How would you like to be Ananias in this story? We don't know for certain, but it seems pretty safe to assume that Saul is still staying with the people that he had planned to stay with before he encountered Jesus along the road to Damascus, which makes it pretty safe to assume that this home of Judas is filled with people hostile to the message of Jesus. It makes sense that he's a little nervous about going where God is sending him, But after a little bit of protest, Ananias goes. And while his role in the story is small, it's because he was willing to join in with the work God was doing that Saul was taken from his state of blindness and fasting into regaining sight, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptized, and eating again. And like we'll see in the last scene of this story, Saul immediately begins preaching the message of Jesus. And almost immediately, he's introduced to the hardship that's going to characterize the rest of his life. Saul isn't told all of that right up front, but but we are through this dialogue between Ananias and the Lord. Now, Ananias had heard about Saul. Now, he had heard that he was coming to town to arrest Christians. Maybe Ananias was in hiding before God appears to him so that Saul doesn't find him while he's in town. But the pursuit of God is something different in mind. God says that Saul is his chosen instrument to take the message of the gospel to the world. And I know that we all probably know how the story ends, but take a moment and try to put yourself in the shoes of Ananias as he hears these words. Saul of Tarsus is no longer going to be the one persecuting the church. Saul of Tarsus is no longer going to be the one dragging Christians before the authorities to have them arrested and perhaps even put to death. He's going to be the one proclaiming the message of Jesus himself. He is going to be the one who's being arrested, who's being brought before the authorities, who's eventually going to be put to death, and proclaiming the message of Jesus as the hope of the world. But before we get to that, there's a time of preparation. God says Paul must learn how much he has to suffer. Just like how the nation of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness learning how God had called them to live as his people, just like how Jesus spent 40 days in the desert preparing for his ministry, just like how the 12 disciples spent three years with Jesus preparing for the day when they would be sent out with his message, Saul will have to prepare as well. He will become acquainted with suffering, something he will know very well by the end of his life when he writes in his last letter in 2 Timothy 3 that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Persecuted. But the first step along that path comes through being offered fellowship within the church and experiencing the transformation of baptism. Look close. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, look at how Ananias addresses Saul in verse 17. Brother Saul. Back in verse 13, when the Lord was speaking to Ananias, and Ananias protests, he says that, I've heard many reports about this man, does not say his name, But by the time he arrives in this home where Saul is staying, there's been a shift. He's no longer this man. He is a brother. And because of that acceptance, Ananias lays hands on Saul. He's able to see again. He is immediately baptized. Just as Jesus rose out of the tomb after three days of death into resurrected life, Saul comes out of darkness into the light of new life in Christ. Later, Paul's going to write in Romans 6 that we are baptized into Christ's death. That just as he came out of the tomb into new life, so also we go down into the waters of baptism to be raised to new life in him. And this passage right here shows him acting that out in his own life. God has been in pursuit of Saul. And that pursuit involves others as well. This is not just Saul working out something between him and Jesus. It was also him coming in to be a part of God's people and God raising up his people to be a part of that process. Now, I don't necessarily think that the takeaway from these verses is that we all need to go out and try to find someone who's blind and try to heal them this week. But I do think that Ananias should maybe get a little more press in this story than we typically give him. I can think of so many names and faces in my own life who have played a part in, in helping me grow in my walk with Jesus. And if you have been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, I'm sure you can as well. And th- those might be small parts that we play along the way. But we all have parts to play in the lives of one another. Sometimes we might meet that calling with fear or trepidation. if we're not prepared, we don't know what we're our getting, getting ourselves into. We don't have all the answers But when we find ourselves asking those questions we should always remind ourselves of the presence of the holy spirit with us we're kicking off a week of vacation bible school here tonight if this is your first time here we don't always have a train over in the side of the room or scaffolding in front of the stage not always most of the time but not always and i'm pretty sure at this point that kim and carrie have signed up the entire church to help somewhere so i I can just say this to all of you because you're all probably volunteering anyways but if you are serving this week, no matter if you're going to be up on this stage or teaching kids or if you're going to be getting snacks out for them, whatever it might be, how big or small you might think it is, you're playing a role in drawing those kids closer to Jesus. So don't pass up that opportunity. You never know what sort of effect those, taking advantage of those opportunities might have. This story right here, these verses we've read, are all that we know about Ananias. Yet his act of going to Saul, calling him brother, laying hands on him, baptizing him, following the commands that God has given him, that started a chain reaction that is still being felt today because that person that he was willing to go to ended up writing half of our New Testament, and we still read and study those words to this day. So after Saul is healed, after he's baptized, like I've already said, he almost immediately begins down this path that's going to characterize the rest of his life. And we get a taste of that here in the last scene in this story. I'll pick back up in verse 19. It says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. The power of Christ moved Saul from power on his way to Damascus to persecute the church into weakness, being blind, having to be led uh, the rest of the way into the city and fasting for three days, And now moves him into a different kind of power, a power available through the message of Jesus. Just like Stephen before him, he begins preaching the message of Jesus and stirring up trouble among those who do not believe in Jesus. And so he has to flee from Damascus. He returns to Jerusalem. He's met with skepticism, as you might imagine. The believers in Jerusalem are afraid of him. Fearful of what he might be able to do to them if this is all a show, remembering what he did to people like Stephen. But there's one person who takes him in, Barnabas. Barnabas won't let the church simply disregard Saul because of his life before he met Jesus. He fights for him. He makes sure that he's accepted into the church. Barnabas make sure that the people of God come alongside Saul in the work that God is already doing in his life just like Ananias had done before him and make sure that he is accepted because of the grace that's available to all people even people like Saul of Tarsus. And from there the story of Acts sort of puts Saul on hold, moves him off stage for a few chapters as he goes away to his hometown, but he will be back to play a part in the proclamation of the gospel throughout the known world. We, we shouldn't move too quickly past the radical transformation in this story that's made possible because of the pursuit of God. I remember a few years ago, uh, I saw a post online uh, in response to a video that had been released by a terrorist group where they were putting Christians to death. And, and the response to that video simply voiced the prayer that God would do in the hearts of one of those terrorists what he had done in the heart of Saul of Tarsus. And I have to admit that even today, thinking about that and saying that up here, I am a little bit caught off guard when I think about that statement. Because at least for me, I, I don't think about the life of Paul before he encountered the risen Jesus all that often. And when we minimize what, happens here in Acts chapter 9. The transformation that occur, occurs, we lose sight of the power of the pursuit of God. Uh, Saul of Tarsus was operating under the authorities, the sanction of the authorities to arrest Christians and have them put to death until the God that was in pursuit of him changed everything about his existence on that road to Damascus. And that truth should remind us of a couple things. First, like we talked about with the story of we unpacked last week with the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. Grace is for everyone. And God is in pursuit of everyone, even someone like Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul. There's no distance away from God that is too far. If the pursuit of God is able to reach someone like Saul of Tarsus and transform him into someone who writes half of the New Testament, he is able to reach you or whoever you might be thinking of right now. Our God pursues... And he invites us in to be a part of his pursuit of all people through the love of Jesus. And secondly, the pursuit of God should remind us what grace has done in our lives as we follow Jesus. If you trace through Paul's letters, it seems like when Paul tells his own story, the older he gets, the more emphasis he places on the transformation Jesus has brought. In Galatians chapter 1, one of, if not the first letter Paul ever wrote, he says that he was persecuting the church, but God called him by his grace. In 1 Timothy 1, one of his last letters, he will say that formerly he was a persecutor, a blasphemer, a violent man, but he was shown mercy. And he says the grace of God was poured out on him abundantly. He says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom he was the worst. Walking with Christ always brings us to a deeper experience of what he's done in our lives. And grasping that enables us to offer that life to others as well. And in saying that, I'm not talking about a low self-esteem that constantly uh, talks about how awful we are and all the things Jesus had to fix. I'm talking about turning our eyes to Jesus and looking full on at the immensity of his love expressed in what he's done for us. And And that experience means we can walk others into that same love. And so because of those truths, I'm going to give you all some homework. You thought you were done after having to do math for the children's sermon. If you would, make a note. You can do it on paper right now or on your phone. You can do it later today after you've had some time to reflect on it. I'm not going to ask you to turn it in for a grade or anything like that, but but make a note and write down three things. First, uh, write the name of one person who has played a role in your spiritual life, who has brought you closer to Jesus. And then secondly, write something that grace has transformed in your life. I know that might be kind of tricky or feel self-serving to do. Maybe you write something like, I used to be bitter, but grace has made me forgiving. I used to be greedy, but grace has made me generous. Like I said, this isn't a report card, this isn't a, a... Way a self-assessment to grade yourself or anything like that. It's a time to reflect on how God is at work in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And then lastly, write the name of someone who you sense God is calling you to come alongside, uh, to bring them closer to him. Like I said, I'm not going to make you turn these in. I'm not going to keep score or grades or anything like that, but I would challenge you all to write this out, to pray over it, and follow God's leading in light of that. Maybe that leads you this week to reach out to that first name you wrote down, say, hey, I don't know if you ever knew it or not, but you played a big role in helping me grow to be more like Jesus, and I'm grateful for that. Maybe look at that second thing and thank God for what he's doing in your own life. Maybe, you know, it's hard to, sometimes we lose perspective on how we've changed over the years. And maybe it's, it's just good to take a moment and say, God, thank you for your grace and what you're doing in my own life to make me more like Jesus. Maybe look for opportunities to share the message of Jesus with others. Maybe for the first time, maybe just calling them deeper into who God is and the life that Jesus has for them. Wherever you might be this morning, our God is a God who pursues. Just like how he pursued the Apostle Paul, just like how he pursues each and every one of us because of the love of Jesus. And my hope is that maybe writing down this little scrap of paper, some notes, will be a tangible way to experience God's pursuing love for yourself or for others. Let's pray. God, thank you for being a God who pursues us. A God who did not leave us in our sin and in our rebellion, but a God who sent your Son to this earth so that the divide that we had created could, could be done away with. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful for your grace. We're grateful for the presence of your Spirit with us now. We ask that you would help us live as your people, help us uh, lean into your grace and grow to be more in the image of your, transformed into the image of your Son, and offer that transformation to others as well. We're grateful for the hope and the life that we have in Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.